I'm Spencer Levy, and this is The Weekly Take. This program is a very big deal. We've got a major player in the real estate business and a milestone for our show. On this episode, a business trip and our first ever in-person conversation. We visit the New York City headquarters of Brookfield Properties for a face-to-face with leaders of a company that's at the forefront of real estate's return. We started bringing people back last summer. Uh, We thought it was important as a large office landlord that we sort of led by example. That's Brian Kingston, managing partner and chief executive officer of Brookfield's real estate group and Brookfield Property Partners. Overall, the firm is the largest office owner and investor in New York and one of the biggest in the world. Now what we're thinking about and what we're talking to our tenants about is less so about the safety around health and more about the experience and what's it like when it gets back. And I'd say, fortunately, we've had a year to run a lot of those traps and have a lot of lessons learned. And that's Ben Brown, a managing director who heads Brookfield's U.S. office real estate group. We'll talk about the world's return to the workplace after the pandemic how things have changed both within their own company and in the world at large. We'll focus on the recovery and look to the future of office, across asset types, and with a wider view on the industry. Quite a view it is from Brookfield's spectacular office high above the Hudson River. Coming up, we take the show on the road for a visit to the headquarters of one of the most influential and important investors in real estate. That's right now on The Weekly Take. Welcome to the Weekly Take with our friends from Brookfield, starting with Brian Kingston, the managing partner and CEO of real estate from Brookfield. Brian, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having us. And then Ben Brown, head of U.S. office. Ben, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Spencer. Well, this is an exciting day for us. Let me set the scene when I walked into the office here today. It is buzzing. There are a lot of people here, and they all seem to be not just productive, but happy. And I just stood up a second ago, and I saw the Statue of Liberty. I mean, it is not only great to see this place hopping, but it's also great to see such a beautiful office, beautiful view. So before we go into the specifics about real estate, I just want to know, how do you feel to be back in the office? Brian? Well, we've been back for a long time, actually. Actually, for Ben and I, it's over a year now, I think, that that we've been in the office. But you know, we started bringing people back last summer. Uh, we thought it was important as, as a large office landlord that we sort of led by example and showed uh, the tenants, et cetera, they could come back in the office safely. So, you know, we started bringing people back in the summer and by about Labor Day or so of last year, we were probably at about mm, 75, 80% of normal um, with the remaining people having some sort of underlying health condition or something like that that kept them away from the office. So it's it's been here in our little bubble, it's been uh, life as usual since really uh, last Labor Day. Really. Ben, how do you feel? Yeah, you know, it's um, surprising to sit back and say it's been a year because it, it's gone by quickly. And we take for granted sometimes we come in every day and we're back to normal life and the rest of the world is just embarking on that return. You, you um, can tell none of us have COVID beards or long hair right? or anything like yeah. that. We've all got the haircuts. But the interesting thing that I would say is, you know, when this happened, so we're obviously a landlord, but we're also a big employer, right? So we were going through the same thought process of any other company on you know, what do we do? How do we bring people back? How do we bring our employees back? How do we do it safely? And it's interesting where we spent the first couple of months thinking about health and what was happening with the with the virus and so forth. And I'd say now what we're thinking about and what we're talking to our tenants about is less so about the safety around health and more about the experience and what's it like when it gets back. And I'd say, fortunately, we've had a year 
to run a lot of those traps and have a lot of lessons learned. So a lot of the conversations we're having with our clients and our tenants are informed by you know, us being back and having most of our people back. And so it feels good, but it at least feels like uh, we have the transparency that we're trying to give uh, some folks so, so they can leverage what we've done and what we've learned over the last year. Well, I like the way you framed it, health plus experience of coming back. So what you're seeing is the product of 12 months of hard work. You know, we put a lot of thought and energy into how to safely bring people back to the office, um, not only for their personal safety, but also in a way that they felt safe and comfortable in coming back to the office. And I think the experience in talking to our people is they're happier for it. They come back with a little bit of trepidation at first until they get into the office. And then, you know, once they're here for, for a day or two, they realize how much more productive they are just being in the office and being around their colleagues, talking to people that you don't necessarily see on purpose, but you bump into them at the coffee machine. And that's where a lot of that collaboration and that, that culture gets built. And so, you know, it's a, it's a hugely important part of the journey. I agree. The thing that's probably surprised me the most, look, we we as an organization brought people back much sooner than average. We were truly out of the office for 60 days. But 60 days felt like a really long time when you go to the office every single day, or like we had talked about earlier. I think those are the things that we're trying to have those lessons learned uh, for a lot of our occupier clients so, so they can take those, understand that, and educate their employees when they're coming back because a lot of it's a comfort level. And it's sort of like ripping the Band-Aid. And once you rip the Band-Aid and you sort of jump into the deep end, you know, the, the pool's not as scary as you, as you thought it was uh, when you were standing there looking at it. When the CDC changed their policy on mask wearing, it changed the way a lot of people were thinking about how quickly they were going to go back to the office, vaccination. How have you guys been dealing with it, Brian? When we first returned to the office, um, there was no vaccine even on the horizon. The vaccine started to roll out in February and we saw cases coming down and generally people getting more comfortable coming back. And so as part of our regular app check-in, we, we've had people uh, upload their vaccine cards as they've been vaccinated. And so we know that within our own population here in the office today, 85% of our people um, have had uh, at least one dose of the vaccine. And, and by the end of this month, that full 85% should be fully vaccinated. Uh, which obviously gives us a lot more confidence to start to relax some of these other safety measures that we put in place, whether that's you know capacity in meeting rooms, et cetera. So if, again, if you were a tenant coming back today and you were starting from that situation, you probably wouldn't have to go through a lot of the learnings that, that we did. Ben, from your perspective, are you using your learnings as a company at Brookfield and passing it along to your tenants? Yeah, every discussion we're having, uh, we're constantly checking in and understanding you know, return timelines. And frankly, the last, you know, I'd say 14 days, we've seen a marked change across the country, every single one of our markets with tenants telling us what their initial return date will be, what their full return date will be, and then engaging in those conversations on, okay, what is it like? What have you done? We start to walk them through all of these things. This is what we did. This is what we've now taken down. This is what you can do. Brian, you have assets all over the world, and the health situation isn't the same all over the world. So how do you deal with that difference being in New York versus one of your other markets? I'd say first and foremost throughout the world, we're following local, whatever the local guidelines are. We've got a big business in Australia, for example. It's been a very different experience down there. For them, um, you know, they had an initial flash, um, but, but really it's been business as usual throughout the country for the last 12 months other than you can't get in or get out of the island. Um, but, but down there, it's a very different um, situation than, say, we have in India, where you know, many of our people right now are at home under stay-at-home orders. And so, you know, in that case, the offices are closed. It's case-by-case case around the world, and it, it was really varied based on where the particular country or particular location is with respect to the disease. The biggest 
pain points, and this is an answer around major gateway urban markets will, will likely be transportation. And, and most of these cities, specifically New York, they're just not set up for the infrastructure to allow you know, a substitute of vehicular transportation as the solution. And so I think it's incumbent on a lot of these places to make sure public transit's safe and efficient. And I know I, I met Brian up at Manhattan West this morning. He just got off the subway and said it was empty. And you probably would say it was probably clean, felt safe, and you didn't have to wait and you got a seat. And so you know, I think a lot of it triangulates around transportation and feeling comfortable on that. But I think cities are working really hard to do that. You know, I think when most people return with the vaccination rates on where they are, the comfort level with social distancing and masks and all these things that we're getting used to, I think that's going to be sort of a quick, distant memory. And I think it's going to be more about what am I experiencing when I'm at the office? So I've now learned for the last year, I can do components of my job elsewhere, whether that's from my, you know, kitchen table or so weekend house or whatever it is, I can do some of that. So when I come to the office, I want to know what's the differentiated experience I'm going to have. And so I think a lot of, I think companies, but landlords are going to think about, well, what does that mean? Like, what do you have when you come to the office? I'd say we're fortunate with a lot of the assets that we own. You know, there's a lot of the mixture of the fabric of those amenities and all those things that make a day a great day when you're coming to work, not just to work, but, you know, to what we all talk about, live, work and play, all of that. We have a lot of that. So, so we're fortunate there, but it's like, how do we optimize those components to make it a much better experience when you do come back versus the alternative, which is remote on the video at your kitchen table, et cetera, which will be some component of it, but you got to make that experience really special when you're coming back. I think there'll just be a bigger focus on that now. Well, that phrase differentiated experience keeps coming up in this podcast. Brian, while we turn to you on that one, how has your point of view on the differentiated experience changed? not just in the short term, but maybe long term, about what people expect from the office. This was happening long before COVID, and I think COVID just sort of highlighted you know, what Ben was talking about, which is, look, there's certain commodity stuff you can do in the like sitting at your desk and reading something or um, you know, just typing numbers into a spreadsheet that you can do from anywhere in the world. And so we don't need to be in an office necessarily to be doing that. On the other hand, there's this huge other part of our business, um, and, and probably most of your listeners' business, where it's this apprenticeship you know, way of working where, you know, older, more senior people are sort of imparting their wisdom onto younger people by learning on the job, where they're working together and they're collaborating or they're coming up with creativity. And that's the bit we've all been missing for the last year. That has been, you know, right at the forefront of what we've been doing with, with our mixed-use developments long before COVID. And obviously, we didn't, we didn't predict where any of this was going, but things like Manhattan West, where, you know, you've got it, it's located in an area where lots of people want to live, there's lots of entertainment and dining amenities around nearby, there's hotel, there's you know, this whole mixed use environment. And it really creates this atmosphere where, you know, people want to come down and they want to collaborate and they, they want to be there. They're not just there to input numbers into a spreadsheet and, and catch the 530 Express home. That has started a long time ago and, and continues. So I don't think COVID's changed anything. Mm-hmm. I think it's certainly accelerated people's thinking around the importance of that, though. When we talk about amenities, I often quote one of my great friends and colleagues, Marianne Tai, when she talks about what is the best amenity in Manhattan? And know what she says? Manhattan. But at the same time, you can create a mini Manhattan of sorts with this live, work, play type of environment, uh, talking about outdoor amenities um, and other things. So what are some of these amenities, if we could go into that a little bit further, Ben, that you're trying to put into some of your new buildings? I couldn't agree more with that phrase. And I think that is the answer to the question, which is what makes Manhattan great is Manhattan, which is 
culture, right? And it's experiences and it's food and beverage and it's entertainment and it's, you know, beautiful built world and public realm and places to go for a run and go for a bike ride and to experience different things. That's Manhattan in a nutshell. And so I think you try to weave each of those things into a project when we're thinking about repositioning a project or we're thinking about developing, you know, brand new ground up. Um, And it's all those things at a different scale. Let's go a little bit deeper into Manhattan for a moment, because I think it's fair to say that there's some people who are said, oh, big city's not coming back. Um, People are going to live out in the suburbs. They're going to go move. Everybody's moving to Austin, Texas and Nashville. What do you say to those people, Uh, Brian? We obviously don't subscribe to that. And I I do think there was a period of time where all of the great things about Manhattan uh, ceased to exist or didn't didn't exist in the same way. So Broadway was closed. The restaurants were all closed. I think now that New York's reopening and you just need to look outside right now, people are back. You know, our multifamily portfolio here in the city went from pre-COVID occupancy levels in the high 90s. Uh, got down as low as 78%, which is the lowest it's it's sort of ever been. We're back in the 90s. It's sort of 96, 97% occupied. Incentives have gone away. Rents are actually going up. Uh, so people are piling back into the city. I, and I think uh, it doesn't mean that people aren't moving to Austin. And, and obviously, there's companies that are opening up headquarters down there. Um, but, you know, just the scale of Manhattan. And it's there's just no way that Manhattan uh, disperses into these other places. So, I, you know, I, I think for all the reasons that, that Ben said, this is a great city. San Francisco is a fantastic city. People love living here. Young people coming out of college. This is where they want to be. This is where they want to start their career. And if you've got a company like Google or Facebook and those are the people you're trying to attract to work for you, you got to go where they want to live. Mm-hmm. So um, to quote the great philosopher LL Cool J, who said, don't call it a comeback because I've been here for years. Uh, I think that's what describes Manhattan. Wouldn't you agree with that? Yeah, that's the second quote I would subscribe to. Definitely. You're, you're on the quotes today. Look, we have this debate constantly, right? Every We're investing across, you know, pretty much every major city you could think of in the U.S. So we're constantly comparing and contrasting and trying not to be biased by obviously what we already own or what what may be good or not good uh, for existing investments. And I would say two things. I'd say one is I think both can be true. Like I think Miami and Nashville and Austin and places like that can thrive and New York can thrive. Like I don't think it's a zero-sum game. And when you think about the scale, as Brian said, you're talking about a city of eight and a half million people relative to to some of these cities of 400,000, 600,000, 700,000 people, which are big cities in their own right, but they're not exactly cities where they're going to have, again, the talent pool, the infrastructure, and frankly, the professional opportunities that New York, all of a sudden, you know, everyone decamps at the beaches of Miami. Uh, and, and as we joke, you know, no one wants to be in Miami in July and August. So we'll see a lot of those people come back. But the second thing that I would say is, you know, I hadn't been on a plane for a year and I, and I got around to most of our offices over the past couple of weeks and being in San Francisco and being in Chicago and being in L.A. and being in Houston, you start to remember, like, these are great cities and they're great cities for a reason. Like, we've been urbanizing for a couple hundred years. That's not changing because of the last year. But that doesn't mean that some of these emerging cities won't be great cities. And in 10 years, we'll be talking about those as phenomenal world-class cities as well. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's like we were talking about with amenities. This was, this was already happening pre-COVID, right? Like Austin was becoming a, you know, a pretty interesting dynamic market long before COVID, and that will continue. You know, Miami has, has continued to grow, and you know, with its proximity to South America and all of that stuff, like those are all great advantages for them. Uh, I think the last year has maybe pushed a few people to move there quicker than they might have otherwise, but also New York and San Francisco remain 
you know, sort of the centers of, of uh, commerce in this country. Let's talk about um, one more Manhattan thing, then we'll move on. The advantages of scale. You are the largest landlord in the city of New York, about 60 million square feet. And so what are the advantages of being basically a significant portion of a 450 million square foot market? Yeah, look, I think I think it's as simple as our competitive advantage as a landlord is information. And so we get more information than any other landlord in the market, whether that's, you know, we have 5 million feet in Brooklyn, uh, we are the largest landlord in lower Manhattan, we have assets scattered throughout Midtown on the far west side in the Plaza District. So we are making decisions every single day, whether it's a leasing transaction, it's an asset management decision, or frankly, a development decision with more data points than most. So that's got to be an advantage. And then, you know, how do we synthesize that and how do we build conviction around that? You know, that's ultimately what we get paid for, but it's having all that access to information. And then I would tie it to scale generally where I always say when we think about our office business, we tend to be the landlord to most large major corporations, right? Whether those are technology companies, or those are financial service firms or law firms. That is true in a single market like New York where we are having relationships with those large tenants all around the world, whether it's in Sydney or it's in London or it's in New York. And having that scale in New York and that diversity of product, I think, is a big competitive advantage. So I think it's information, but then it's also a relationship with our end customers uh, and having the asset base that can optimize the outcomes there. Let's go back to these big multinationals for just a moment because they're going through COVID-2 as an occupier. And they're saying, gee, do I need all this office space? What do I do to make myself more flexible, including flex space, including different lease terms? What kind of conversations are you having? How are you responding to these types of questions? I'll make one comment, which is I am so relieved after a year to realize that most of our tenants just haven't done anything. And I'll explain what I mean by that. But at the start of this, I was concerned that they would all knee-jerk and make big, massive changes on space design. How do they work? What does the work look like? And while they haven't answered most of those questions, I think it's a good thing because clearly as we started this conversation, we've evolved so much from where we were in May of last year uh, to where we are today. And so those thoughts and, and the implications on what that means has changed so much that I'm glad they haven't made, you know, for lack of a better term, some mistakes around what that looks like. And so, I, you know, look, I would tell you that Flexibility was a discussion we were having well before COVID, right? Flexibility was every company now with, you know, the emergence of technology as a big part of their business is changing so much quicker than they had ever changed before. And if you talk to an HR person or, you know, you know, the chief people officer at any company, they have projections on what the five-year headcount looks like, but they know that they're wrong, right? And so how do you plan and sign five, you know, 10, 15, 20-year commitments with such a you know sort of fluid uh, headcount when you're thinking about people. And so flexibility was there. So yes, will COVID drive more flexibility? Probably, but what it'll really drive is probably more indecision uh, and some of this short-term decision-making that we're seeing. And, and look, I think our view on this is it would behoove you today to actually make a long-term commitment if you were a really sophisticated tenant. I think some that will, will do it early and look back and say, wow, you know, we bought on sale. Uh, and I think what we'll end up seeing is if you took the bet on does the economy feel better five years from now than it does today 
And your answer was yes to that. You probably in five years with a short-term renewal, we sit there going, man, I really had a buying opportunity. So, you know, but I think a lot of large companies will pay for that flexibility. And so we're starting to see that. And so I think as a landlord, you can capitalize on that. And uh, and as long as you can sort of understand that and the capital markets start to come around to it, I don't think it is as material as we may think. And I think when people get back into the office, they'll understand, I really need some stability in my business. And so I actually do need long-term commitments. And I do need space that I know I can have for the next 10, 15 years. And it's it's all the stuff around the edges that us as landlords will have to be flexible with, but I think there is some marriage value there. I don't think it all goes out the door and says, you know, tenants need flexibility and landlords lose value. I think there's there's a way where that calculus can sort of be one plus one equals three, uh, and the landlords who figure that out quickly will be will be the winners. Recognizing that this is primarily an office discussion, we we do have to talk a little bit about retail. And I will just say, when I was a a young kid in the business, I used to come to this very building to go because it was super cool, the palm trees, the whole deal. This place was a forward-thinking building, Brookfield uh, Place, and, uh, and I'm sure is today and will continue to be. But I think it's also fair to say that retail is um, probably behind office in terms of its comeback, in terms of how it's changing. Well, I would like to get your point of view, Brian. Yeah, I don't know if that's true. Uh, again, trends that were afoot prior to COVID mm-hmm. have continued on. So clearly, you know, there was, there was a move for, um, you know, some commodity retail to move on to the internet, and, and this is a space that Amazon has sort of owned. Obviously, over the last year, with everything shut down, there was a massive amount of adoption of, of people that maybe didn't ever think they would try buying groceries online or, or some of these other things. Um, so that's changing. But but I, I think for the strongest retailers, and I actually just read this morning that um, that Arnaud at LVMH is now the richest man in the world, um, clearly some retailers are thriving in this environment. And I, and I think it's the same idea as what we're describing with Office, which is for those retailers or for that retail real estate that's creating a reason for people to want to go there, it will continue to thrive and excel in the future. And so that is, you know, either having um, a product that you really need to come and see and touch or, an, or a sales experience around that, or a shopping center that brings you in and gives you experiences you can't just replicate online, entertainment, food and beverage, you know, this real sense of community, et cetera. I, you know, I think that retail continues to thrive. Do we have too many square feet of retail in the United States for the amount of sales that are happening? Probably. Mm-hmm. Um, and that'll continue to change. And that was already happening, right? And so some of those older shopping centers that haven't either evolved in that way or they have competition, they will continue to suffer. But I think for the really high-quality retail centers and the really high-quality retailers, the future is 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 strong. Uh, for most of our shopping centers today, foot traffic is back uh, 80 to 85% of normal. Sales are largely back where they were uh, or, or pretty close to it pre-pandemic. So, and that's why I say I'm not sure I quite agree with your statement because the reality is our office buildings, we're still trying to get people to come back into them. The malls, they're back. From the standpoint of uh, Brookfield, let's talk about your company for just a moment. Um, first of all, you're a Canadian-based company, and uh, you have multiple capital bases, not just the publicly traded, but you also have private funds. Um, let's talk about that, but also it's been in the papers that um, you're looking at a, a potential privatization. So I'd like to hear about your capital base today and how the privatization might help you in the future. Yeah, you know, look, I think like any other real estate company, it's all about access to capital, and, and we try to make sure that we've got uh, multiple avenues to capital, whether that's through publicly listed vehicles uh, or private funds. And, and within those private funds, there's a whole suite of, of different products, everything from, from debt to uh, core plus or value add or opportunistic. And so depending on where certain investor appetite is, we want to make sure that we've got a, a product that helps to, uh, to address all that. And so that's, 
you know, that really is our business, um, is, is sort of trying to find that lowest cost capital and then put it to work into uh, assets and leverage off of the operating platforms that we've built to earn great returns for them. Uh, in the case of the public vehicle, uh, Brookfield Property Partners, it was not trading at a, um, at a price that reflected the value of the underlying real estate, which made it difficult to raise capital in the public markets. Uh, and so we just saw that there was an opportunity for us to take it private, reconstitute it a little bit, um, you know, probably put that real estate into more efficient hands, you know, that was uh, better able to understand it. The problem with Brookfield Property Partners was it was just too many, too much for everybody to focus on because it was a number of different asset classes. It included development. It was in a lot of different countries uh, and just wasn't well suited for public markets, whereas our, you know, our fund investors are, um, are able to look at, at individual ones. Let's talk for a moment about a topic that I keep talking about on every one of my calls uh, is ESG. Uh, environmental, social governance, and some investors have added an R, resilience. So let's uh, talk first with you, Ben. How often is this coming up in your conversations with occupiers? How are you addressing it? Uh, it's definitely on the top of the list now. Um, and what's interesting is it's on the top of the list, but I think people are getting educated on what they really mean when they say ESG. They'll tell you from a corporate perspective uh, it's very important. And so a lot of these conversations are, I'd say, fluid and changing over time, but it's definitely on the top of everybody's list, right? Um, and I think it will continue to be, and I think it will be uh, no longer a check in the box, but I think one of the people at the table making a decision around real estate will be someone that's responsible for you know, ESG and whatever that definition is for that occupier. So it's important. Um, it's coming up more and more. Uh, and I think at some point, it'll start to institutionalize and we'll really be able to react to uh, what the occupiers are looking for from an ESG perspective because we have a ton of ESG policies and programs as a company ourselves. That could frankly be different than the occupier we're talking to and what they're looking for from, uh, from an ESG perspective. What I find most interesting is that it's evolving, right? I think certainly different in Europe than it is here in the States. So, uh, Brian, how do you keep tabs of that when a, the a European investor might have a different point of view than an American. I think it's a unique perspective that our business brings because it's not, you know, it's not just Ben and I sitting here in New York running a European business from here. We we have real operating businesses that are on the ground. And, uh, you know, just like we're front and center on shaping some of that policy here in the U.S., our teams in Europe are leading best practices over there as well. And frankly, it goes much broader than just our, our real estate business, but into our infrastructure and private equity and, and renewable power generations businesses as well. So, you know, the, the scale, as we talked about earlier, of, of our business um, from a capital perspective certainly helps with transactions. But from a people perspective across our various operating platforms, um, including real estate, we have 120,000 people around the world with real operating platforms in all of these markets. And so I think it, it is absolutely it's, it'll differ, you know, in, in Asia versus Europe versus North America. But I think, um, you know, having real businesses on the ground kind of helps us stay front and center in all those things. Well, Brian, uh, you might have cringed when I said the most important piece of infrastructure your own two feet, because I believe you used to run the infrastructure uh, group right here at Brookfield. But um, I would love to know your point of view on infrastructure versus real estate. Yeah. So to be clear, I ran it in Australia. Okay. But uh, but it, it, look, they are very – at first, when, when we describe our business to people, they say, well, it's a really broad range of different businesses, and it's sort of a uh, an unusual concentration. But the reality is, I think what's happened over the last 10 years, in particular with a lot of our clients, is those two businesses uh, have become much more closely linked. Because if you if you sort of step back and think about what does it mean to invest in real estate or in infrastructure, you know, it's, it's a massive upfront capital commitment. 
you're generally entering into long-term contractual arrangements with a tenant or a government that, that pays you uh, financing. And then it's, it's really about maintaining that asset and continuing to grow the cash flows. And so we could be talking about real estate or infrastructure. Our investment approach to both uh, is exactly the same. Um, the tenants are a little bit different. The basic principles are the building blocks of what we're doing are, are the same. Ben, I got to ask you a Boston question since you're a Northeastern grad in New York. I know this is maybe blasphemy, but New York versus Boston. Boston seems to have the reputation for Cambridge and, and life sciences. Um, but then again, you have 60 million square feet here in New York and the entire CBD of Boston is 60 million. So how would you compare and contrast the two cities from an investment standpoint? I will say I'm biased. I do love Boston. I think it's a phenomenal city, although I just gave New York all that praise. Uh, so I won't say it's definitely not better, but it ranks highly. I, look, I, here's what's interesting. Boston is a city of neighborhoods. So when you talk about the scale of Boston, it's exactly that. From an office perspective, traditionally you have financial district and back bay, almost both pretty small, like you could walk in an hour from one end to the other. Then you have the emergence of the seaport, which is new. And you sort of have this collection of neighborhoods. You, and then you have a pretty institutional, what I'd call like inner suburban ring, um, sort of investable office market. What was interesting about Boston is, and this goes to your life science comment, is it is a city uh, unlike any other in terms of intellectual capital, right? I mean, I think... I. I I think it's fair to say, but you're the research guy. It's got more students than any other city in the world. It, it is true, though. If you were to quote the band, this is Spinal Tap, they said that Boston's not really a college town, but that was, you know. <laughs> okay. That, that I, I, be, I beg to differ. But, uh, yeah. uh, but like we said, the, the whole vicious cycle of how real estate decisions are made on the office side, um, it's all about the talent. And that city has the best and the deepest talent. Now, you can go to the Bay Area and you can say the same thing about, you know, Stanford and Cal Berkeley and so forth. But uh, in a small market like that, an East Coast market, a pretty parochial town, it's pretty impressive in terms of the talent. So it's from an investment standpoint, it's a great market. It should be a better office market based on all those fundamentals. It feels like it should be more of a tech town, just given MIT and, and all the surrounding uh, universities and engineering talent. And I'm not sure it really feels like a tech town when you spend time in Boston, but I think that's its sort of upside. But the great thing it has is it's a phenomenal quality of life. I wouldn't say it's inexpensive, but I'd say it's a relatively decent cost of living. It's got a little bit of something for everyone. Uh, and so for all those factors, I think it's a great place to invest in on the logistics side. I think it's a great place on the multifamily side. Uh, and and we'll find our spots on office. But, you know, we did fortunately have a lot of life sciences there through the Forest City acquisition, which we've now obviously disposed of. But, you know, a market that we'll continue to look at just given all the obvious fundamentals that should drive that market for the next couple of years in terms of demand as long as supply stays intact. So I'm always bullish on Boston. So one of the things you mentioned there, uh, Ben, was a reinvention when you talk about the seaport. But you could talk about that in any great city in America. You talk about the meatpacking district right here in New York, not a few blocks from here. I used to only go there to a restaurant called Frank's. I'm not even sure if it's still there, but it was really good uh, while it was still there. But um, I like to look at this from a global perspective, Brian, uh, because I could look at the Fulton Market in Chicago. I can look at the Wynwood section of Miami, the L.A. Arts District in L.A. I can go right down to listen. Are you seeing that same type of reinvention happening globally? Yeah, we could add Canary Wharf to that in yeah. London, um, you know, Shintandi in, in Shanghai um, and, uh, and a number of places around the world. So, I, you know, I do think it, it's sort of back to the point about what made these cities great. 
Shanghai has been a great city for hundreds and hundreds of years. San Francisco has been a great city for a couple hundred years. They continue to be great cities, but the infrastructure and the assets need to be reinvented and uh, certain neighborhoods fall into lower state of repair and, and need to be turned back over. So I think you know our, our Manhattan West development here really kick-started off that regentrification of that area. It's, that's going to be you know a central location within New York for the next 25, 30 years. That's the kind of thing that we're, we're trying to invent around the world. If you are a office uh, occupier, uh, what, what should you be thinking today? And if you're a office investor, what you should be thinking today. Let's start with you. Yeah. So, so look, if I was an office occupier today, uh, you know, I'll mention what I said before, but I think it's all about experience. And that can mean anything from, you know, what your space design is to what location you're in. Like you said, neighborhoods, um, you know, proximity to transportation, all of those things are so critically important right now uh, because you're going to be in a sales mode to try and convince people why they need to be back in the office and they should be back in the office and they're productive being back in the office. So I think it's about experience on the occupier side. On the investor side, part of me loves the trade away from office because I think we're seeing some really fundamental opportunities on the buy side here. For all intents and purposes, like globally, we're in a yield-starved environment. And you read article after article about you know, junk bonds trading at all-time lows and, and all these other financial instruments uh, for people seeking yield. And we're buying really, really high-quality office assets with really good underlying credit, which feels really cheap relative to where base rates are. So I think on the investment side, it's sentiment-driven, and I think that's a good thing for us. I think we tend to uh, swim in the opposite direction. That's where we find opportunities. I think we'll continue to do that. And on the office side, that's probably where we'll be busiest. Is your point of view that you're going to see a shift of capital back into office and maybe now is the right time to go there? I do. I think you will. I think there'll be a window where there's a capital void. Uh, I think investors like us will try and take advantage of that. But your point is right, which is cap rates really haven't moved and values probably haven't moved, but rates have moved tremendously. And the financing markets have been so supportive that inherently, when someone's looking on a levered basis, you should, and I know this is you know, this is always you know, a slippery slope, but you should see cap rate compression on the best assets, assets that are high, high quality, high barrier to entry markets with really good credit. There's no reason why you shouldn't see compression in where yields are today and where they should be going forward, even if the outlook for fundamentals is softer than people anticipate. Because if you're buying a 13 and a half year lease, you really shouldn't be impacted by what happens in rent fundamentals in that market over the next 36 months. Ben, I'm going to take a wild guess. One or both of you are on your own investment committees here in the company. And I would say that when you try to underwrite a building, I've been saying for years, now I'm saying it on the record, that people have been underwriting wrong, that they have been putting 50 to 100 basis points on the exit cap and saying, oh, we're conservative. Well, I disagree with that underwriting assumption. I've been right the last 10 years. I think I'm still going to be right. So uh, that being said, uh, in an investment committee, it's harder to sell. What do you think, Brian? Yeah, you know, look, I, I think we've sort of had that same view, I think, for a long time, which is that we are in a very low interest rate environment for a long period of time. Will they be exactly where they are right now? Probably not. And as the economy recovers, they'll probably move up a little bit from here. But I do think, you know, anybody who's expecting, um, you know, yields to move materially higher than here and, and cap rates to move up higher, you're going to be shocked to the other direction, which is, uh, you know, I think they stay down here. The bigger question, and I think the bigger challenge right now with underwriting is where rents are going. I and mean, that's where I think people are 
Um, like to Ben's point, although there hasn't been a lot of trades, I think the sentiment generally around office has been quite negative and more so than on rates. It's really been around where rents are going um, because I think people are making an incorrect linkage between increased flexibility and less requirement for space. And I don't think the two necessarily follow. We've had a flexible work arrangement here for 25 years, right? Like you, if you want to take Friday off because you're going away for the weekend or you need more flexibility during the week because you're looking after your kids while your, your wife or your husband's away, like you've been able to do that. It doesn't mean you can now get rid of half the desks because nobody's here on Wednesdays. Both of these things are going to happen. There will be an increased amount of flexibility. We've all found that you can use your phone, you can use your laptop, you can dial into calls from the road, um, which a lot of us already knew. Um, but I think, it, like to your point about tenant advice, you know, I wouldn't be using this as a reason that you can, you can necessarily shrink your overall footprint. I think what you need to be thinking about is, What's important about the office? How do you change the way you're using the office to get those benefits out of your people for the hours that they're in the office? And whether that's three days, four days, five days, seven days a week, the, the important thing is how to use the office. Well, on that note, I just want to thank our friends from Brookfield. First, Brian Kingston, managing partner, CEO of Real Estate. Brian, thank you for joining us. Great. Thanks, Spencer. And Ben Brown, head of U.S. office from Brookfield. Thank you for joining us on our first live broadcast, well, live in the sense that we're live together, but we'll be taped of the weekly tape. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having us. Appreciate it. For more on our guests and on our show, as well as other insights into the world of office real estate, check out cbre.com slash the weekly take. You can send feedback and suggestions as well as share our show. So please subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you listen. It was fun being on the road, but even though I'm back in the remote world next week, we're already working on more great shows to come. For now, as always, thanks for joining us. I'm Spencer Levy. Be smart, be safe, be well. Be well.